Good to see you all this evening. I'm going to begin our time together in Proverbs 30, starting in verse 24. Proverbs 30, verse 24, beginning. It says there that there are four things which are little on the earth, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they prepare their food in the summer. The rock badgers are a feeble folk, yet they make their homes in the crags. The locusts have no king, yet they all advance in ranks. The spider skillfully grasps with its hands, and it is in king's palaces. There's a lot of wisdom to be found in the book of Proverbs, but I think this section here is interesting because Solomon takes some time to note lessons that we can draw by observing some of the creatures that God has made to inhabit this earth. And so I thought that with our time this evening, we would expand on that a little bit and we would think about some lessons that we can learn from the animals. Throughout the scriptures, there are various animals that are referred to, and sometimes they are referenced to help us avoid something. Sometimes they're referenced so that we might follow their example, if you will. And so we're going to see examples of both of those things over the course of the lesson. Now, the list of animals that I have come up with for tonight uh, surely could be expanded upon. It is not exhaustive, in other words, but I hope that the ones that we've selected uh, will be a benefit to us all. And so we're going to start with one that was referred to there in that passage that we had just read, and that is the ant. Now, what can we learn from the little ants? You know, sometimes ants can be a pest. They get into your house and you have to follow their little trail back to figure out where the source is and try and come up with a way to stop them, unless they get in and get into things that you don't want them into, such as your food, etc. So they can be a pest that way, but at the same time, we can learn some valuable lessons from them. We can learn the value of working and working together to accomplish a common goal. You know, Jesus made the statement in John 9 and verse 4 that we must work because the night is coming during which no man can work. In other words, the point that he was making is we have a finite amount of time while we are alive and well on the earth to make sure that we are doing God's will. Getting things in order, if you will, in regards to our soul and our spirit and our relationship with God through his Son. When we depart from this life, there will be no more time to set any of those things in order, and so we have to think ahead. There, back in Proverbs chapter 6, back a few chapters from where we were just a few moments ago, Proverbs chapter 6, we find another section of Scripture where the ant takes center stage. 
In verse 6 of that 6th chapter, he says, Go to the ant, you sluggard. We don't often call each other sluggards these days. It's not a a name that you often hear. But the the idea there is somebody who is lazy, somebody who doesn't want to do any work. And so he tells this lazy person, go to the ant. In other words, consider the ant. Consider her ways and be wise. He says, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer, and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands, and so shall your poverty come on you like a prowler, and your need like an armed man. I can think back to when I was in school, and I used to have nightmares where I would dream that I was in class, and all of a sudden the teacher would say, okay, everybody hand in their projects, and I would see all my classmates start passing up these large you know, bundles of paper, and I realized in that moment that I don't have my, my thing done. I, I didn't do it, and I would wake up in a panic. I'm sure you've all had similar dreams. But we all, I'm sure, have put off at one time or another something that we should have been preparing for, something that we should have had done well in advance, and then we get right up to the time that it's due, and we we feel that sense of panic set in. Well, we don't want to have that happen at the end of time. That's the last feeling that we want to be experiencing when we hear that final trumpet sound. You know, Jesus taught a parable in uh, Matthew chapter 25, one that most of us, I'm sure, are familiar with. First part of the chapter there, starting in verse 1, he says, The kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. He says, Five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps but took no oil with them. But the wise, they took oil in their vessels with the lamps. While the bridegroom was delayed, it says they all slumbered and slept. And then at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. And all those virgins arose, and they trimmed their lamps. And then the foolish suddenly realized their folly, right? They realized that they should have prepared better. And they say to the wise, well, can you give us some of your oil, for our lamps are now going out. But the wise answered and explained, no, lest there should not be enough for us and you. So they say, you need to go and, and buy some more for yourselves. But while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, he arrived, and those who were ready, they went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. And afterward, the other virgins came also, and they said, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say, I do not know you. And so, in conclusion, Jesus says, Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Back in Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 6 there, you recall how it explains that the Israelites under Nehemiah's lead, that they had built 
the walls of Jerusalem up to half of their original height. And it says there in that verse, for the people had a mind to work. They were determined. They were not lazy. They were not trying to put anything off, but they were determined to get it done. And so we can learn that valuable lesson as we consider the hardworking ant. What about the lion? A lot of lessons we can learn from the lion. Now, we might immediately think about our adversary, the devil, right? And we'll talk about that in a moment. But I first want us to think about the lion in a positive sense. The idea of being courageous. Let's come again back to Proverbs, and let's notice in chapter 28 there, Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1. It says here, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. It's that verse right there, Dan, that makes me not want to go jogging. (laughs) Well, it says that the wicked flee when no one pursues. So what am I running from? The righteous are bold as a lion, it says. And certainly when we think about the lion and we observe the lion, whether it's, I've never really been able to observe one in the wild. I don't think probably any of us have, but you can see them at the zoo or watch documentaries and things and see their behavior and see their confidence that they have about themselves. They, of course, recognize in some sense that they are the top predator in their environment. And with God, we have every reason to be bold, just like the lion, to be courageous, to face any challenge that might be presented. And that ties in with a a verse, or a couple verses, I should say, that I had referred to this morning, back here in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13 and verses 5 and 6. It says there, let your conduct be without covetousness, be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? But we can also, from the lion, recognize the ferocity of our foe. And as I had mentioned there a moment ago, or at least my mind, when I think about the lion, I I typically think about 1 Peter 5 and verse 8, where it talks about Satan being like that roaring lion, walking about seeking whom he may devour. The lion is bold, but the lion is also ferocious. It is not a beast that you want to uh, wrestle around with. We would easily be overtaken. And if we're not careful, Satan can very easily devour us. If we are not relying upon the Lord, staying close by his side, then we can likewise be very easily overtaken and devoured. In Ephesians chapter 6, if you turn with me there, this is another passage that we had referred to briefly in our morning lesson. But we read a section of scripture here towards the end of the chapter. Uh, concerning the need for us to prepare to go up against this ferocious adversary. 
We'll start there in verse 10 and read down through verse 13. Paul says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Notice where the strength and the power are found, not within ourselves, right, but within the Lord. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes or the wiles of the devil. You see that word wiles, uh, it means scheming or devising of plans, and it always reminds me of Wile E. Coyote, remember him from Looney Tunes? Now, he was always scheming, wasn't he? Always trying to come up with some new contraption that he could catch that roadrunner with. Well, that's the way that the devil is. He's always trying to come up with some new trap to catch us off guard. He says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. And so he goes on there, and we could read in detail about all those pieces of armor. Uh, But that section there is really what I wanted us to focus on for this particular point. God has supplied us with everything we need, but we do have to recognize that those things are supplied for a reason, and we must be prepared to do battle each day against uh, our cunning foe. What about the sheep? The sheep is another animal we can learn lessons from and is oft referenced in the Scriptures. I think one of the most obvious lessons that we might think about in connection with the sheep is the need for us to follow the shepherd. Jesus, of course, identifies himself as that good shepherd of the sheep. We can come back to John's Gospel in chapter 10 there. Notice a few verses. John chapter 10, first of all, looking at verse 11. You notice that Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, and certainly Christ has done that very thing. In verse 27, jumping down a little ways there, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Come back with me to First Peter, the second chapter. And start reading with me there in verse 21. Now here in this context, Peter is writing about the need for us to be patient in the face of persecution, especially as it would pertain to uh, submission to earthly masters. He says, to this, this ideal you were called. And the reason for that is because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. And in describing him, as he quotes from the psalmist there, Jesus committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that 
we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes, he says, you were healed. And then notice verse 25, he says, you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I've never really interacted with sheep all that much, but I'm told that they're not the brightest animals. And if left to their own devices, they will easily fall into trouble, get lost, wander around. They really need guidance to stay together and to be protected. And it's such a fitting analogy as we think about our need for Christ. Without him, we are lost. We are we are in trouble. We do not have the things that we need. Let's come back again to the book of Hebrews for a moment, again in chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, and notice with me now in verse 20 there, verses 20 and 21. He says, Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, again, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. As you think about what a shepherd does, a shepherd provides everything that the sheep needs. He guides them to, you know, to borrow some of the language of the 23rd Psalm. He provides the sheep with green pastures, right? Leads them to still waters that they might drink. He protects them. He corrects them when need be. Think about the shepherd's staff and how it's able to both save. The one end has the hook. If a sheep falls down somewhere where it's stuck, can pull it up to safety. Can also correct, right, with that sharp end at the other, uh, other side. And so it is with the Word of God. If you think about what the Word of God does, it's every tool that we need to be perfect and complete in God's eyes. And that's what 2 Timothy 3 and verses 16 and 17 are all about. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. And if we will follow that and listen to that, then we can be everything God wants us to be. What about the wolf? What can we learn from the wolf? I think one of the lessons that is stressed throughout the scriptures and is oft connected with a wolf is that of being aware and on guard against false teachers that are certainly all around about us in the world as they have been, really going back almost to the very beginning. Men, whether they intend to or not, oftentimes can fall into misunderstanding of what is right and correct, and they can misguide those who are not willing to take the time to search out whether the things they're teaching are actually true. Several verses I thought we would look at on that point. First of all, in Acts chapter 20, in verse 29 here of this text, we find that the Apostle Paul is speaking to 
the elders from the congregation in Ephesus, and he's giving them some instructions, some warnings. And in verse 29, he says, I know this, that after my departure, notice savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So he's talking about here, of course, the idea of false teachers, those that would come in with the intention of destroying the truth and not standing in the truth and leading others astray from it. Jesus, of course, talked about this idea back in Matthew. Look with me here in chapter 10. First of all, there are verse 16. As he's speaking to his disciples, he says, Behold, I send you out as sheep, notice, in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and be harmless as doves. Back a few pages in chapter 7. We see there, starting in verse 15, that Jesus teaches us to beware of false prophets who come to us in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, what's he say? He says they are ravenous wolves. And so oftentimes, false teaching it doesn't sound maybe on the surface like false teaching. It doesn't sound, you know, you're not going to have somebody get up at the pulpit and say, you know what, enough of this following Jesus. We need to follow Satan. That's what we need to do. And nobody's going to pay any attention to that, right? They're going to immediately dismiss that. And it comes more subtly, right? Just a, a slight twisting. And that's exactly what we see Satan doing, even going back to the very beginning, right? He just adds a word or changes one slight thing or... As we think about Jesus' temptation there in the wilderness. Remember, Satan quoted scripture, but he misapplied it. And so often, that's the way these things come to us. They appear innocent. They appear good. Well, how will we be able to determine who are the true sheep and who are these wolves in sheep's clothing? Well, he says you will know them, verse 16, by their fruits. He says, do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree will bear bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So therefore, he says, by their fruits, you will know them. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verse 21, we're told there to test some things, most things. No, he says test all things, doesn't he? He doesn't leave anything out. And as we test all things, he says hold fast to what is good. And God's word, of course, is that standard by which we can test all things. Let's think about the eagle. It's my father's favorite animal. A lot of reasons for that, but some of which is based upon passages of Scripture, such as ones that we'll notice here. When I think about the eagle, I think about the passage back in Isaiah. Maybe you do also. Isaiah chapter 40. 
<clears throat> and we'll start in verse 28. The question is asked, Have you not known? Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints, nor is he weary? His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, even the young men shall utterly fall. But he says in verse 31 that those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. And he says they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So the eagle, as it's illustrated here in this passage, is used to teach us about patience and trust in God. Knowing that God will see us through even the most difficult of times. Back here in Hebrews chapter 10, the Hebrew writer talks about our need for perseverance. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 35, he says, Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. He says, For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul God speaking, has no pleasure in him. But notice verse 39, We are not of those who draw back to perdition, but we are of those who believe to the saving of the soul. And so as we picture that majestic eagle soaring high above the earth, it's a, an illustration of how we can rise above the things, the challenges, the hardships of this earth, using the Lord as the wind beneath our wings. What about the spider? That's one everybody loves, right? Everybody wants to have a little pet spider that they play with every day. I see a bunch of heads shaking this way. <laughs> everybody wants to smash the spider, right, since they see him. I don't really like spiders myself, so I don't blame you. But you know, there's a, an interesting lesson I think we can learn from the little spider. We actually had read this earlier, if you recall. But let's go back and read it again. Psalm 30. <clears throat> verse 28. wrote down the wrong passage here. One second. Huh? Oh, I'm in Psalms. Thank you. <laughs> I was like, how did I mess that up? Here we go. Okay, so we had read this, like I said, at the beginning. It says there that the spider skillfully grasps with its hands 
And the thing that I think is interesting there is it says it is in king's palaces. Have you ever stopped and thought about that? You can have the most high security facility that is, you know, locked down to the point that if you don't have some kind of super advanced key card, there's there's no way you can get into this this place. And deep within the recesses of this facility that no man can penetrate, you look up in the corner of the room, and what do you see up there? You see a little spider with his web just living it up, right? Isn't that interesting? He wasn't invited. Nobody asked him to come live there in the corner, but there he is. You know, and I, as I thought about that, it kind of reminded me of what Jesus said over here in the New Testament, chapter 14 of John. He talks about this place that he has prepared for us in his father's house. These mansions that are there awaiting the faithful, those that would cling to God, if you will. Let's read together here the first six verses. It says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, he says, you know in the way you know. Thomas says, well, Lord, we do not know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And so Jesus, clarifying, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you think about heaven, and you think about yourself, and we recognize the truths of Scripture that bear out how we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we don't deserve to be in the king's palace, do we? We, we forfeited that through our own selfish desires and giving in to sinful things. But yet we can be found in the king's palace in eternity through Christ. There's a place that has been prepared for those that would be faithful, those that would be washed clean by his perfect blood. And so, like that spider, if we will cling to God, we can have a wonderful home that we truly don't deserve. And that's a really pretty amazing thing to stop and think about. So see, even spiders have a good purpose. Even though they're creepy. Well, there's another creepy one. What about the snake? That's another one. Most people don't like snakes, right? The snake can teach us about not being deceived. Because, of course, we know that Satan took the form of a serpent there in the Garden of Eden when he carried out his very first deception and caused man to sin. Paul refers to some of these things in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 11, we'll read the first four verses together there. <clears throat> 
He says, oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. And indeed, you do bear with me. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, he says in verse 3, lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, he says you may well put up with it. That was his fear anyway. Just as Satan found success all those years ago, he finds success in the very same ways today with you and I. We have to guard against it. Of course, we thought about that as we were considering the lion and his ferocity. Come back with me to Proverbs once again. Not Psalms, but Proverbs. Uh, Let's look at chapter 23. In verses 31 and 32 there. Now here he's talking about the deceptive nature of wine and alcohol. A lot of people get caught up in those things. And so the writer says, Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. Notice he says, At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. So, you know, in some ways, it's kind of weird, but a snake can have some beauty to it. Some of the patterns that they have and the movements that they use to, um, to hunt and to move about. You think about the, the rattlesnake and how it shakes its rattle and the cobra as it fans out its fantastic wings there upon its head. But the beauty is deceptive, right? Because at the last, what that snake wants to do is to bite you, to devour its prey. And so it is with the things of this world, the sinful things that often allure us. They might have an air of beauty. They might attract us in some way, but at the end, just as it says here, it bites like the serpent. So we must not be deceived. Well, here's one everybody likes. The dog. Everybody likes a dog. A couple different things I thought of in regards to dogs. The first and maybe the most obvious is love. You know, you can be the most rotten, no good, dirty scoundrel imaginable. And you can still have a dog that just thinks you're the best thing on the face of the the earth. I heard it described once that God created the dog as a reflection of himself. And if you think about the spelling of God and you reverse that, what do you got? You got dog, right? 
The dog doesn't care if you smell bad. He doesn't care if you were just out doing something you shouldn't have been doing. You come home and that dog is wagging his tail and he's excited to see you and he wants to give you kisses, right? Loves you unconditionally, doesn't he? In a lot of ways, and that's just like God is. Now, that's not to say that we can live a life of sin and God's going to be okay with it, but that does mean that he always loves us and desires that we would be with him. God is love, right? Back here with me to uh, 1 John chapter 4 for a moment. First John chapter 4, and look there with me at verse 7, starting. <clears throat> Read down through verse 11 there. It says, There are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. If we receive the witness of men... I'm in chapter 5, forgive me. My mind's a little scattered these days. I knew that didn't sound right. First John chapter 4, uh, again verse 7. Uh, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested towards us. In other words, how do we know that God really is love? Well, he says it was de declared in this way, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this, in, we might say, the plan of salvation and the gift of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, in that is love. He says, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His, sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, then we also ought to love one another. And that includes the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? <laughs> you get back here and read what Jesus said at the end of Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 there. He says, you've heard it said that you should love your neighbor but hate your enemy. But I say, verse 44, love even your enemies. Bless those who curse you. And do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So you observe a dog and you can learn a lot about the concept of love and how we ought to love each other. We can also learn about not returning to sin. The dog is used kind of in a rather nasty way in, in 2 Peter chapter 2, at the end of that chapter. Just a reality of life, but one that's not pleasant to think about. But notice with me there just a few verses at the end of Second uh, Peter 2. Verse 20, he says, If after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and the Savior Jesus Christ, they meaning Christians, if they are again entangled in those sinful things and are overcome, he says, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. 
For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. So this particular lesson here, I guess we could learn it from the pig and the dog because they're both referenced there. But we need to not go back to sin. God likens that to a dog returning and consuming that which he had just vomited up that had made him sick to begin with. And it's a disgusting thing if you've ever seen it. You don't want to see it again. But it is their nature. And through that we can learn a very powerful lesson. About the deer. What can we learn from the deer? Well, if you stop and think about it, sure, there's all kinds of things. We think about deer as we travel down the road trying to be cautious and not hit the deer, right, as they run out in front of us. But I want us to think about the deer in the sense of thirsting for righteousness. And that's based upon, this time we are going to the book of Psalms. <laughs> and we're going to go look in Psalm 42. Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2 there. And there have been hymns written based upon this particular passage. But notice there it says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And this concept is one that we see repeated time and time again throughout the scriptures, how we need to have a real thirst for righteousness. Jesus talks about it again, coming back here to Matthew chapter 5. At the beginning of the chapter, as we commonly refer to these first few verses there as the Beatitudes. In verse 6, he says, Blessed are those who hunger, notice, and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Peter talks about the idea in 1 Peter 2. First three verses here, he says, Therefore, lay aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all evil speaking. In verse 2 he says, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. We all know what it's like to be thirsty. We all know what it's like to, to have a taste for something. You ever get to where you're just craving, whether it's a certain kind of drink or something that you want to eat that sounds really good. You get those phases where you just are craving something. Do we have that same craving, that same desire for God's Word? You know, if we go maybe a day or two and we haven't really spent much time reading the Bible or thinking much about spiritual things, do we find ourselves kind of like, man, I'm really craving some, some quality study time or I really need to, to get back and just sit down and read the Bible a little bit. I, just, I miss it, right? I'm craving that. 
Or can we go for weeks or months and not think anything about it? You know, if that's the case, are we really thirsting for righteousness? I think we can see the obvious answer there. Well, the final point tonight, as we've been thinking about these different animals and lessons that we might think about in regards to them and how the scriptures reference them, the final point that I want us to establish is that you are not an animal. Now, there are men all over the face of the planet that want you to believe that you are just an animal, that you are just happen to be the most highly evolved animal that exists on the planet, but that is not true. It's not true at all. In fact, we go back to Genesis chapter 1, and we can see very plainly expressed here how that we are anything but mere animals. Verse 26 there of Genesis 1, God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, And let them have dominion over all the animals, over the fish and the birds and the cattle and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Mankind is special, you see. As we think about Jesus, as we have done throughout these various points in our lesson, Jesus didn't die for all the dogs. He didn't die for all the giraffes. He didn't die for all the geckos. You know, we could go on down the list and cite all these different examples. He he died for you and I as human beings. We who have been created in the image of God. John 3.16, of course, I'm sure we all can quote. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In 2 Peter chapter 2, once again. Notice with me verses 12 through 14. Here he's talking about earthly-minded people. And notice how he describes them. He says, these, in verse 12, like natural Brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of things they do not understand. And they will utterly perish in their own corruption. They'll receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions, while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices, he says they are accursed children. Those who do nothing but give in to their base impulses, to their own selfish motivations and desires, he, he likens them to animals. You're not acting like children of God. If that's your mindset, you're, you're acting like these brute beasts. And that is not God's intention for you and I. You notice in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, what does Paul say there about you and I, and our creation in Christ. He says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God, notice, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This was God's intention in creating us, that we should walk 
in his ways, that we should exemplify his perfection and glory, bear his image to his, his praise. Well, how do we convert from the beast to the child of God, we might say? Now, another verse I think we all know well is found in Acts chapter 2. Verse 38 there, we find that Peter explains what a person needs to do to escape from the consequences of sin, to put on Christ, become a child of God, and realize the purpose for which they were made. Peter said to them there, Repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps there is one here, even tonight, who needs to do that very thing. I hope that the lesson has been useful to you. The Bible is full of comparisons. It's full of analogies, using things that we can observe naturally here all around us on the earth, that we can draw spiritual lessons from, and The animal life that God has created is no exception, as we've seen here this evening. So I hope that we'll keep all these lessons in mind. Maybe this will motivate you to pay a little more attention to uh, the animals around you. And think think about, what can I learn as you observe them? And just try not to pay attention to cats, because cats will just lead you down the wrong path. there's anybody here this evening who has a need to either put on Christ in baptism or to repent of a sin you've committed or even just to ask for prayers as as our good brother did this morning just needed encouragement uh, we would love to to help you in any way we can whatever your need be please let it be known come up to the front while we stand and sing